Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. This will be week number 13. And as of last Sunday, we have accumulated seven and a half hours of material so far. Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. Look at verse 1, please. And the Lord said unto Moses, See, I have made thee a God to Pharaoh, and Aaron thy brother shall be thy prophet. So, if you think of Jesus... You may think of John, or if you think of Paul, you may think of Barnabas, or if you think of Peter, you may think of John. If you think of Antichrist, you may think of the false prophet. Time after time, people are found in scripture as working in pairs, going out in twos. And the Lord said unto Moses, see, I have made thee a God. If you look at the Jehovah's Witness blasphemous Bible, from John 1 1, it says how Jesus Christ was a God, lowercase g. And if you think about that for a few minutes, what they are saying in essence is that there are two gods. There's a big God, being Jehovah, of course, and there is a small God, a minor God, being Jesus. But of course, that won't do. But here, what you've got in essence is Almighty God speaking to Moses. And he's saying this, that as far as, far as a Pharaoh is concerned, you will be a god to him. Because Pharaoh was very superstitious, a polytheist, and therefore for him to weigh up Moses, for him to try and appreciate or praise Moses, what Jehovah wants to do is to really raise him up. Elsewhere in scripture, it speaks about the gods. I think it's Psalm 82. And it says how the Lord stands amongst the congregation or in the congregation of the gods. And if you speak to people who hold to the gap theory, they say this. They say, well, before Adam arrived, there was a pre-Adamic race. And it was uh, run. It was uh, controlled by Lucifer. And he was the god of this world. And something went wrong. A rebellion uh, broke out against the one true God, and therefore God said, that's it, wipe them all out, and start all over again. I personally don't hold to the gap theory. I've never really held to it. I know many good dispensationalists hold to the gap theory, but I don't. But the point is this, the term a God, or God, many times refers to, in the sense, or refers to in the meaning of leadership, governors, if you look at the Hebrew word for God or gods, nine times out of ten, the word is Elohim. If you think of Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, the heavens and the earth. And that word God in Hebrew is Elohim, which can be uh, in the sense of the one true God or in the sense of gods. One more time, 7.1. And the Lord said unto Moses, Triune God, see, I have made thee a God to Pharaoh. I will elevate you. He will consider you deity. Of course, Moses was not a deity. Moses was just a man. And Aaron, thy brother, shall be thy prophet. John the Baptist, as far as I can recall, never did any miracles, whereas Jesus Christ would, of course. So the point here is that Aaron will be the spokesman of Moses. He wasn't needed, of course. And we've already discussed this over previous Sundays. But due to the insecurity of Moses, due to Moses saying that he was of uncircumcised lips, slow of speech, so on and so forth, the Lord met him halfway. But imagine this. 
Imagine John the Baptist saying to Jehovah, I can't be your preacher, your prophets. I can't come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Please send someone else or raise up someone else to assist me. And yet, if you profile John the Baptist, he was remarkable. He didn't need anyone to help him to do anything. But here Moses is up in years, around 80. He's not sure of himself. And therefore, by the grace of God, the Lord will allow Aaron to be his prophets. And on top of that, to do miracles, unlike John the Baptist. Two, thou shalt speak all that I command thee. And Aaron thy brother shall speak unto Pharaoh, that he send the children of Israel out of his land. Don't you hold back anything, Moses. Chapter 4, chapter 5 speaks about what the Lord wanted Moses to relay to Pharaoh. And one of the things he wanted Moses to relay to Pharaoh was that if he didn't let the children of Israel out of his land, if he didn't allow them to leave, Almighty God would kill the firstborns. And that would include the firstborn of Pharaoh. And of course, Moses didn't relay that to Pharaoh because he was fearful. The fear of man bringeth a snare. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So Moses and Aaron are going to work very closely together. And just for the record, when it comes to their age, there's no more than three years between them. You've also got Miriam working in the background not doing signs and wonders, and yes, she is referred to as a prophetess, but in the sense of worshipping, praising, and pleasing the Lord. She wouldn't receive revelations as such. She wouldn't predict the future as such. She was, at best, a picture, a type, a uh, mirror of what we read about from uh, Romans 16 concerning Phoebe who was raised up to be a servant of the Lord. Look at verse 3, please. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Signs and wonders. Matthew chapter 12. We want to see a sign from you. Jesus Christ would say, no sign will be available to this evil and adulterous generation. And then he would turn around and do miracles left, right and center. Why? Well, to strengthen the faith of his apostles and also to increase the faith of those that would come to believe on him. And once again, verse 3, the Lord is saying that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. Jeremiah says our hearts are desperately wicked. The word of God says how we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The word of God says how all of our righteousnesses is as filthy rags. And here the Lord is going to harden Pharaoh's hearts, and before you jump up and down and say, this sounds unfair, remember what I said a few weeks ago, that Pharaoh would harden his hearts as well. Multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Supernatural acts, of course, because that is what Pharaoh would expect. Pharaoh was a god, lowercase g. Pharaoh was deity in his own mind, of course. And Pharaoh was polytheist. Excuse me, Pharaoh had sorcerers. Pharaoh had people that were on a retainer, if you will. He could just click his fingers and his lieutenants, his magicians would come to his aid. Throughout the life of King James, he would, during most evening meals, have at least one or two theologians not far from his dinner table. And he'd be 
uh, entertaining his uh, dignitaries, VIPs, and he would jump from subject to subject, somewhat of a butterfly, really. He spoke six languages, and he would uh, be one moment speaking about hunting. That was his real love. And then he would switch to something like this piece of scripture. And he could read it in Hebrew. He could, he could translate it into English, Latin, and French, as could his mother, Mary, Queen of Scots. And on several occasions during an evening meal with many dignitaries, Around his table, he would consult his theologians. He would consult his men of the cloth, as they are referred to. And he would love to play games, uh, theological games, with those that were standing all around him. During one winter, he was no more than 22, 23. He spent the entire winter reading the book of Revelation, studying the book of Revelation. Could you imagine Prince Charles? doing that no you can't can you imagine prince william doing that no you can't can you imagine prince harry doing that no you can't and he spent the entire winter reading researching revelation in english and greek and you ask yourself why well he was preparing for a debate with a jesuit priest could you imagine the current sovereign doing that i think queen elizabeth speaks a few languages i know she speaks french but I don't think she speaks Greek. I might be wrong, but I don't believe as educated as she was, as wise as she is when it comes to her diplomatic charms and experiences. But when it comes to the Greek language, Koine Greek, I don't think she is able to speak such a language. And the purpose of James, like I say, uh, spending the entire winter, and I mean the entire winter in Scotland, and Scotland is a very cold country if you don't know, in the winter months, was in preparation for a public debate with a Jesuit priest. And that debate ran five hours. And of course, you know who won. James, of course, King James of Scotland. He wiped the floor with this Jesuit priest. A bit like when Rutman debated Keating. He wiped the floor with Keating. Or when Martin debated Paqua, Martin wiped the floor with Paqua. These Jesuits, like the current Pope, don't really believe in anything. If you look back to this past week, the Pope gave an interview, yet another interview, and he said that hell doesn't really exist, that the souls of unrepentant people just disappear. A bit like limbo, which they closed, quote-unquote, back in 2006. And that story has gone all around the world, and Catholic theologians have been running around trying to undo the damage Another interview popped up this past week from Pope Benedict, and he gave this interview maybe four or five years before he retired. And he said the same sort of a thing, that non-Christians, and of course he means non-Catholics, uh, can go to heaven. You don't have to be a Catholic to go to heaven. And the article in the paper, which was sent to me by a good brother of our ministry, uh, asked the question, well, why be a Catholic? Why be a Catholic if non-Catholics go to heaven? Why give all of your money to the Catholic Church? Like when you die, if there's no hell. And the next thing they'll be saying is there is no purgatory. But not just yet. Because purgatory, of course, is a wonderful money maker. Of course, it is a racket as far as we are concerned. But such Catholics have shot themselves in the foot. And I'll say this before I move on. Why... Aren't we hearing more from educated Catholics? 
like middle-class professional Catholics, why aren't they standing up and speaking out against their popes, two popes? If you go back to probably Pius XII, the last real pope, I guess, or the last traditional pope, of course he was a fake, all popes are fakes, they're all uh, idolaters, they are all magicians, and we will speak about that this morning, but he was the last real pope in the sense of classical Catholicism. Since 1958, 59, when he died, every pope since then has been a closet communist, a closet Marxist. And as the decades have gone by, they have become more and more open, more and more brazen, more and more uh, unashamed of themselves. But here, signs and wonders, like supernatural signs and wonders, not placebo, not some clever hypnotist this is the real thing and this again number one is going to point back to the sovereignty of the lord i am that i am whom do you seek jesus of nazareth and they all fell backwards for 500 found over in john chapter 18 you try that sometime if you believe in the sign gifts for today you stand in a street corner in london manchester or edinburgh and you say i am that i am people just walk straight past you like you are invisible. But when Jesus Christ would say it, they all fell backward. And when Jehovah would say it, miracles would follow. Look at verse 4, please. But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that I may lay my hand upon Egypt, and bring forth mine armies, and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, by great judgments. So one more time. My people being the Jews, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like their descendants, not Calvinists, not Catholics, not Protestants, not the black Hebrewites, nor the nation of Islam. If you live in the land of Israel, smaller than Wales from memory, a tiny island off the Mediterranean, if you live in Israel today, you are there as a guest. You don't own the land. And yes, I know the Catholic Church owns large parts of Israel, which is a disgrace. And one day, Almighty God will take those title deeds back from such a false church. Mine armies, my people, children of Israel, going back to the first chapter. uh, The first chapter, like uh, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, listing the descendants concerning the twelve Sons of Jacob, if you think of Matthew chapter 10, you're told about the 12 apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you may ask yourself, why are these names listed? Well, for a Jew, it was very important then and now to find out where they fit in to this messianic jigsaw. They want to relate themselves or they want to know where their families fit into this. And here, the people of Israel, the children of Israel are, of course, referred to as the armies. Because under a theocracy, they would fight, they would kill, they would take people into uh, custody, and on many occasions would liquidate enemies of Jehovah. For today, we don't live under a theocracy. We live under grace. And if we come into contact with an enemy of the Lord, we rebuke such a person. We warn others about such a person. And then we separate from such a person. We don't kill anyone. Five. 
And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I stretch forth mine hand upon Egypt, and bring out the children of Israel from among them. He wants to reach the Egyptians in a roundabout way, but that's not the main point of this. The main point of this is to rescue his people. The scripture says how Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. And here the Lord wants to do the very same thing. He is the good shepherd. Psalm 23, John chapter 10, the good shepherd, the great shepherd. And during his search and rescue mission to rescue over 1.5 million people. He knows that this will be seen all around Egypt and beyond. And he wants to do uh, this great act to show people that he is the one true God. Unlike the gods that Pharaoh worshipped. Going back to verse 1, of course. 6. And Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded them. So did they. Faith without works is dead. Works without faith is dead as well. If you love me, Jesus would say, keep my commandments. 7. And Moses was fourscore years old, and Aaron fourscore and three years old, when they spake unto Pharaoh. So, Moses is eighty, and his brother Aaron eighty-three years of age. Most people in the UK, when they turn sixty-five, if they are male, retire. It's kind of mandatory, especially if you work in the public sector. And women are also retiring now, around the same age. I think as of next year, the age of retirement has been changed to 67 due to the massive deficit that Britain accumulated with the crash of the world currencies back in 2008, 2009. So men and women are working longer and they are working longer because there isn't as much money as there was uh, pre-08-09. Most people, when they reach the age of, say, 70, are retired, are very happily retired. And yet, I remember some years ago working with a gentleman, and when he turned 65, he was told to retire. It was mandatory at the place that I worked at that time. And he left. He had a good send-off. He had been, I think, 35 years at my place of employment at the time. And off he went, and eight months later... I got in the lift one morning, going up to my floor, and he got in. And he was all suited and booted, as we say. And I said, hey, how are you? And he said, I'm fine. And I said, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm back on a retainer. I'm now working as a consultant. I thought, not a bad earner. He obviously enjoyed his retirement for a few months. The wife didn't want him around, like day and night. Uh, She had her own life, of course, and within... Maybe six, seven, eight months, he was able to come back and work three days a week, nine till five. He got bored. He wasn't uh, particularly happy sitting at home. He had done all of his chores, and it was time for him to do something. And he was very fortunate that he had a speciality. He had a trade, and he was able to come back and work three days a week. So it is remarkable when we see Moses around the age of 80, and his brother at 83, being deployed by the Lord to speak to Pharaoh. And I will suggest that Pharaoh, the third and final Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, was probably younger than Moses and his blood brother. 
which just goes to show that you're never too old, really, to serve the Lord. 8. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh shall speak unto you, saying, Show a miracle for you, then thou shalt say unto Aaron, Take thy rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and it shall become a serpent. Show us a miracle, Jesus. You say you are the son of David. You claim to be the Messiah. Show us a miracle. And time after time, he would do just that. And yet, the more miracles that he would do, the more the leaders of Israel and a good number of the people would also harden their hearts. They would say over in the Gospel of Matthew, we shan't have this man to reign over us. And to this day, a good number of Jewish people are very hostile towards Jesus. And for a good number of Christians, like born-again Christians, they don't know what to do with that. I caught a debate last night. It was filmed probably 25 years ago in America, and it concerned a group called Jews for Jesus. Unfortunately, a charismatic ecumenical group, but back in the late 1970s, early 1980s, it was something of a novelty. It was kind of, kind of unusual to have a Jewish group. I mean, real Jewish men and women that had come to faith in Jesus Christ and parts of their purpose, like ex-Catholics of Christ, was to reach out to their own people. And they've been going for, I think, 35 years now. And this television debate took place, like I say, maybe 20 years ago or thereabouts. And this Jewish guy was debating the representative for Jews for Jesus. It wasn't a scholarly, scholarly debate, scholarly debate like uh, James would enjoy with the Jesuits or Ruckman and Keating, Martin and Paqua. It got a bit touchy in parts. But the hostility from certain members of the Jewish audience concerning Jesus was quite shocking. Again, I think a lot of Christians, not all, but a lot of born-again Bible-believing Christians that are pre-millennial have a love for Israel, and rightly so, love the Jews, and rightly so, and yet they are paralyzed. They can't handle this hostility, this hatred, and it is hatred, towards Jesus. They shy away from it. They will speak out against Islamists who attack Jesus and the Bible, but when it comes to Jews attacking Jesus and the Bible, they are silent, and that is shameful. If you are a Jew or a Gentile and you hate Jesus, you should be ashamed of yourself because he is the Messiah, he did more miracles than any Old Testament man combined. If you take all of the Old Testament greats and add up all of their miracles and then look at what Jesus Christ did, he outstrips them three to one. Look at Muhammad, how many miracles? Zero. Look at Buddha, how many miracles? Zero. Look at Cleopatra, look at anyone, anywhere. Going back two, three thousand years when it comes to miracles. I mean real miracles that you can see with your own eyes. They don't come anywhere near the Lord Jesus Christ. But here, show us a miracle, verse 9, and Jesus Christ would show them a miracle. If you think of that account from John 11, his good friend Lazarus has just died. He has waited several days, like three days, to go up to see Lazarus. By the time he reaches the graveside of Lazarus, he has been dead and buried four days. And the sisters of Lazarus say that he stinketh, it stinketh, the body is now decomposing. And he says to the sisters, roll away the stone. And of course they do. 
and he says, Lazarus, come forth. Now today, it is Resurrection Sunday, the most important day in the Christian calendar. And I know that for some people, they don't like Easter. I know for some Christians, they don't like Good Friday. Fair enough. But let me say this very briefly. Does it really matter which day Jesus Christ came up from the grave? Like today, or yesterday, or even tomorrow? Does it even matter the exact day that Jesus Christ was crucified? Was it a Wednesday? Was it a Thursday? Or was it a Friday? And yes, I know that the Jews count their days evening to morning, evening to morning. And if you were to push me, I would probably say that Jesus Christ died on a Thursday, perhaps, and came up very late Saturday, uh, which gives you three days and three nights. But for the purpose of the world, going about their business, why not use Good Friday, which in the UK is a public holiday? Why not use Good Friday to preach about Jesus or Christmas Day to preach about Jesus? You were told from Romans 14 how to one person a particular day is holy and to another it is not. It doesn't matter whether he died on a Wednesday, a Thursday or a Friday. He died and that is all that matters and nor does it matter whether he was raised on a Saturday, a Sunday or a Monday. He went into the tomb, he stayed in the tomb and after three days the Father, the Spirit and himself, I might add, raised the body from the dead. Show a miracle, and Jesus would do so. Like I say, John 11, he would raise Lazarus from the dead. And within minutes of such a miracle taking place, they are backbiting. They are trying to undermine what has taken place. And it says how the Lord wept and how he grieved. Show a miracle for you, verse 9. And of course, Moses was, will, will do this very shortly. Then thou shalt say unto Aaron, Take thy rod, thy staff, thy stick, and cast it, throw it before Pharaoh, and it shall become a serpent. It will become a snake of some kind. Also, remember from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, how the Jews require a sign. And one of the great signs that the Lord would give to unbelieving Jews was the sign of tongues. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, you've got the apostles, saved Jews, speaking in tongues, like 12 known languages that were seen by dozens, if not hundreds, perhaps thousands of Jews that went up to the temple for the day of Pentecost. And they heard the apostles, including Matthias, speaking in tongues. And they said to themselves, this is incredible. Others said that they are drunk. And of course, you know that Peter gets up and away he goes. Look at verse 10, please. And Moses now went in unto Pharaoh, and they did so as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh, and before his servants, and it became a serpent. So, once more, Moses and Aaron are working hand in hand, like Paul and Barnabas, like Peter and John. I think it's Acts 5, Peter and John are detained. They are whipped, beaten, and it speaks about them rejoicing that they were worthy to suffer for the Lord. And yet, if we get uh, ignored on the streets, if we get a dirty look, if we are pushed around on the streets, many times we feel that is a terrible disservice. And we take it very personally and shame on us. But when it came to Peter and John, they rejoiced in the fact that they suffered for the Lord. 
Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants. This will be a public miracle, of course. And it became a serpent. Now again, serpent being a snake. Satan being a snake. And here, Almighty God is demonstrating that Moses and Aaron have authority over the devil. And this miracle needs to be done in the presence of wickedness. Look at verse 11. Then Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. Now the magicians of Egypt, they also did light manner with their enchantments, magic and sorcery. Second Timothy 3.8 speaks about a couple of guys like Janus and Jamboros. And it says how they withstood Moses. And here this clash between good and evil is going to concern Satan and Jehovah. If you think of 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 13 to 15, and also Revelation chapter 13, it speaks about Satan giving authority to his own people, his uh, counterfeit apostles, and the Antichrist will be commissioned by the devil. Contrast that to what Moses and Aaron are going to do. Contrast that to what Paul and Barnabas would do from Acts chapter 14. And also from the Gospels. 11 again. Then Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. He wants to reverse what is about to take place. Now the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. If you think of, for example, martial arts, witchcraft, or the secret arts, you get some understanding as to what is going on. If you... Think about some of the main uh, magicians in the world today, and there are some, or some of the top hypnosists in the world today, and there are many. In essence, most of that is obviously the occult, but also a lot of that is to do with trickery, going back to uh, playing with serpents, using uh, the sleight of hand to train a serpent's, a snake, like what you see from India. But here, we shouldn't be too surprised that Pharaoh has his own magicians, sorcerers. And this is also one of the reasons why Christians should be very wise and careful not to get involved with martial arts. Like Kung Fu, Karate, or Taekwondo, and Aikido as well. You go into that environment, you bow down, you stand up. A lot of that, uh, unfortunately, is a throwback to the ancient world. Witchcraft has never gone away. In fact, I think it was five years ago, the Royal Navy uh, announced that for the first time in the history of the Navy, they, allowed, uh, they were allowing a female Satanist uh, to become a chaplain on one of their subs. And that was quite a story at the time because... The religious system in this country says all religions are equal. In fact, just this morning, the Archbishop of Canterbury is doubting the legitimacy of the resurrection. Wales. Wales, excuse me. And yet, if you were to question his salary, he would go bananas. If you were to say to him, can you show me from scripture why you should get a salary? He'd go straight to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You know he would. He wouldn't question that. But he'll question the resurrection. Francis will question hell. Benedict will question the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, how no man cometh unto the Father but by me. 
And here the whole thing is a farce. But here these verses are dealing with a major clash. The first major clash concerning Moses and Pharaoh. Concerning Aaron and the magicians, the sorcerers in the courts of Pharaoh. And again, one last time, the term enchantment simply means witchcraft, secret arts, martial arts. Witchcraft, Satanism, and spells and bells. And if you think of Glastonbury, and we were there last year, almost every single shop had tarot cards, crystals, and everything else. And our tiny group breezed in, got the banner up, preached a few words, gave out several tracts, I might add. Twelve in our clothes, for they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swatted up their rods. So you've got Aaron with a singular rod, a stick, which becomes a serpent, a snake. And it's a bit like throwing dice. Not that I've ever done it, but I've seen how they do it. They throw dice. The dice is roll. And here you've got a clash of the rods. And it says how they cast down every man his rod. Also note there are no women present. And they became serpents, plural. But Aaron's rod swatted up their rods. Absolute panic. Now they've got to deal with the reality that Aaron is the real thing. Like Paul and Barnabas. In fact, if you think about uh, John chapter 3, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. And he says, we know who you are. We know that no man can do what you do. And that term, we, means the children of Israel. In fact, Nicodemus was a rabbi. He was a senior rabbi, and he believed the Old Testament inside out, like King James would believe both Testaments, unlike religious people today, like the Archbishop of Wales, or his counterpart in Canterbury, or the previous, or the last two popes in Rome. And the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And is it any wonder that there was so much confusion? Is Is there any wonder that so few people go to church anymore? You've got the top boys at the top, very bright sparks, being to the best universities and theological seminaries in the world, like Rome, which, if you are a Catholic, is the place to go to. Though I wouldn't want to go. I wouldn't want to go there. Or if you are from England, Oxford and Cambridge. And yet, this past week, we saw Stephen Hawking's have his uh, Anglican funeral. And he, what is that for? He was an atheist. His second wife was a practicing Methodist. And they would clash repeatedly. And yet he died a few days ago, was buried yesterday, was cremated yesterday at a cathedral, a place of worship in Canterbury. We were there last summer, praise the Lord. A good outreach indeed. Talk about a hypocrite. Why are these people having so-called Christian funerals? And you wait until or you wait till uh, Dawkins, Dawkins dies. Be the same sort of a thing. Let's have a service. Let's remember these people. They are wonderful. And yet they spit in the face of the Lord. They blaspheme him. They ridicule him. They call him filthy names. And yet when they die, quick, get the priest. Quick, get the vicar. Let's have a religious service of some kind. They are hypocrites, stinking hypocrites. Their friends are hypocrites. The churches are also hypocrites to allow such people into into their buildings for a burial as, as such. And here... Had Aaron been been present in Canterbury yesterday, he would have been 
absolutely distraught to see such hypocrisy. He would have got his rod out and thrown it on the ground and said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, like John the Baptist would say from Matthew chapter 3. So 12 verses from Exodus chapter 7, and we've still got a long way to go, but this is the book when it comes to miracles, and the battle lines have now been drawn between good and evil, between the truth and heresy. And if you are a Catholic, if you are an Anglican, if you are a Darwinist, if you are a scientist, scientist, and you think you are smart or that you have the truth, can you show me that you have such from the scripture? And if the answer is no, then you have nothing. And by the time we get through with the book of Exodus, you will find, you will see, you will appreciate, you will witness the destruction of the greatest nation on the face of the earth. Not due to an army of hundreds, tens, but two men working under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. Like John the Baptist, like Jesus Christ, like Paul and Barnabas, like Peter and John, and of course like the two witnesses found in the book of Revelation. So last Sunday we were able to cover the first 12 verses from Exodus chapter 7. And if you just joined us, where have you been? We've been very blessed over the last 13 weeks to accumulate around eight hours of material. And therefore, for today, if we may, let's begin in verse 13. And he hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had said. Keep your hand there and jump over to, uh, let's see now, just before we started to uh, go out live. A verse came to my mind. Uh, Luke, Luke chapter 6, Luke uh, chapter 6, look at verse 45, please. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. Go back to Exodus chapter 7. So you've either got a good heart or a bad heart. You either produce good fruits or bad fruit. And of course, the other option is that if you are carnal, you will go both ways. There will be times when you will be more holier than others. But when it comes to the rule, when it comes to the norm, you're either a good tree or a bad tree. You either got a good heart or a bad heart. And of course, if you have a good heart, that means you've been regenerated. And if you have a bad heart, that means you haven't. So 7.13... Hardened Pharaoh's heart. This will be the uh, second or third time that this has taken place. And every time the Lord would harden Pharaoh's heart, he would return it in return. That he hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had said. So it's worth reminding ourselves that Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the world. It's difficult to think of someone today that comes anywhere near his level of power, prestige, privilege, I guess if you were to go into the Vatican and challenge the Pope like Luther would do indirectly and say to the Pope that it was necessary to let the Catholics go free from Catholicism, there would be a death warrant issued against you. And during the years of Martin Luther, he was a real thorn in the side of the papacy. They despised him. I think it was Paul V who ordered his death. But what the Pope didn't realize is that 
the lords and dukes in Germany were very fond of Martin Luther and they gave him safety and sanctuary and therefore Luther was able to write against Rome, challenge Rome uh, indirectly through his writings and like I say that was a real uh, issue for the Catholic Church. But for today it's difficult to think of someone as powerful as Pharaoh being challenged in such a public way. Look at verse 14 please. And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuseth to let the people go. You better buckle up, Moses. It's going to get tough now. It won't be a walk in the park. I've already told you that this will go the distance. And this will be the third, make that the second stage in the life of Moses. The first stage in the life of Moses or the first event. The first major event in the life of Moses was the murder of the Egyptian. This will be the second major event in the life of Moses. He will come up against Pharaoh. And a third and final part in the life of Moses will be his forfeiting the right to go into the promised land. Which again, like I said over the last several weeks and months and years, is a picture of our millennial inheritance. And yes, you can lose your millennial inheritance, not your salvation, your millennial inheritance if you live after the flesh. Verse 15, please. Get thee unto Pharaoh in the morning. Lo, he goeth out under the water. Thou shalt stand by the river's brink against he come. And the rod which was turned to a serpent shalt thou take in thine hand. And here, Pharaoh in the morning, like early morning, goeth out under the water. And thou shalt stand by the river's brink, by the river's bank, against he come. And the rod which was turned to a serpent like a snake shalt thou take in thine hand. Several things going on. Number one, Pharaoh was very superstitious, like the popes of Rome have always been. Number two, he thought he was a god, going back to 7-1. Number three, he believed in miracles, and therefore the Lord wants to meet him on his own ground, if you will. On top of that, never forget that Pharaoh would have had many people standing around his uh, inner circle, his lieutenants, if you will. So this will be a very public demonstration of the Lord's sovereignty. But here, water, river's brink, the bank of the river, the river Nile. And I'll speak about that in a moment. Against he come when he come, and the rod which was turned to a serpent, shalt thou take in thine hand. So once again, you've got Moses doing miracles. You've got Moses using an aid of some kind. So people could see where the power was coming from. Of course, directly it was coming from the Lord, but he would allow it to be seen via this rod. Verse 16. And thou shalt say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath sent me unto thee, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. And behold, hereto thou wouldest not hear. Up until now, Pharaoh, you haven't listened, and I've been ordered to come to you to speak to you and I'll say this that the description here from verse 15 is not only the first of three rendezvous between Moses and Pharaoh but this uh, morning ritual will involve some kind of religious aspect to it he wasn't just going down to the river's bank the river's brink uh, to have a swim it was a form of purification and I'll say this as well If this river's bank, river's brink from verse 15 is a river Nile, which I believe that it is, let me tell you some 
uh, important and interesting facts. The River Nile is 6,670 kilometers. That's 4,160 miles. It is the longest river in Africa and the world. This river flows through Uganda, Ethiopia, Sudan and Egypt. Back in 1956, President Nasser decided to close the Suez Canal. And yes, the Suez Canal does feed in to the River Nile. Therefore, the Nile was, and to this present day, remains a very important aspect to Egypt. During the Gulf War, in fact both Gulf Wars, the Allies would go through the canal to reach uh, Iraq. So when we think of the Nile, when we think of Egypt, when we think of the Suez Canal, we realise the importance of such an area. And I want to come back and discuss that one more time in a few moments. 16 again. And thou shalt say unto him, you will say to Pharaoh, the Lord God of the Hebrews, not the Egyptians, not the Gentiles, not the Catholics, not the Protestants, not the Muslims, the Lord God of the Hebrews, like the Israelites, hath sent me unto thee, saying, and here this dialogue will be taking place, or it will be spoken probably through the tongue of the Egyptian language. It may have been possible that Pharaoh could speak Hebrew. It's possible the Jews were in his land for over 400 years. It's possible that Pilate and Herod may have been able to speak a bit of Hebrew. But when Jesus Christ spoke to uh, Pilate and Herod, he would have spoken to both in Greek. And here you've got Moses speaking to Pharaoh in Egyptian Let my people go, they belong to me, that they may serve me in the wilderness. Wilderness is a type of separation, like come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And behold, here too, up until now, thou wouldest not hear. So he is giving Pharaoh the chance to honour the orders of the Lord. Of course, the Lord knows that Pharaoh will never honour, or he will never obey the voice of the lord jesus christ speaks about my sheep know my voice and they listen to my voice if another should come like the antichrist they won't follow him over matthew 24 it says that if it were possible even the elect would be deceived of course it's not possible and matthew 24 if you don't know is speaking about the end of the world or the end of this current world when the antichrist arrives and when he arrives many not some but many will fall for his deception. I look at 17 if you will. Thus saith the Lord. In this thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Behold. I was smite with a rod that is in mine hand. Upon the waters which join the river. And they shall be turned to blood. So. If the Nile. If we are to assume this is a river Nile. And I believe that it is. If we look at the Nile today. Over 4,000 miles. In its total length. Are we to assume. Or could we assume this. Could we assume that maybe not all 4,000 miles would be turned to blood? Imagine that. Imagine countries like Uganda, Ethiopia and Sudan, all Islamic by today's standards, of course, and Egypt, witnessing such a display. But let's say half of that. Let's say 2,000 miles of that. So let's break it down to 1,000 miles of that turning into blood. What a sight indeed. I will smite with a rod that is in mine hand. Upon the waters which are in the river, and they shall be turned to blood. If you think of John chapter 2, when Jesus Christ is at the marriage supper in Cana, and they bring bottles of water to him, and he turns such into wine. 
And there's been much discussion over the years as to whether that was real liquor or not, real alcohol or not. And I would say that it was, but it was heavily diluted. Because if you think about it being hard alcohol, like 100% alcohol, and back in the day, wedding ceremonies would run anywhere between four to seven days. And if you've got, say, two or three hundred people at such a wedding, if you are serving hard liquor, like 100% alcohol, people are going to be intoxicated within probably an hour or two, depending on how much alcohol such can take. If you think of John chapter 6, the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to his apostles and also the Jews in a synagogue. Remember that? It was a synagogue, not a church, a synagogue in Capernaum. And he would say that you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Not literally, of course, that is figurative language. And of course, you know that the blood of Christ is what saves us. And therefore, to drink of his blood is partly pictured at the breaking of bread, which we will do at the end of the service. And the eating of flesh is partly pictured at the breaking of bread, which we are told to do from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But ultimately, the eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood is all tied up with his death, burial and resurrection. You better believe in that. That's what he is saying. So here Moses is going to change water, sea, river, uh, water, H2O, into blood. And this uh, miracle, dealing with the waters and a river, turning into blood, may also appear in the book of Revelation. If uh, Moses is, of course, one of the two witnesses. But you can't miss the similarities, can you, between Moses and Jesus. Water into wine, water into blood. And one more time, blood in the New Testament is a picture of our salvation. Whereas here in the Old Testament, it is a picture of judgment. And yes, he would shed his precious blood. And if you think of that scene from Ben-Hur, right at the end, when the Lord Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross, it's one of the most powerful scenes in Hollywood history. You've got the blood coming down off the cross, uh, landing on the ground, of course, going down some streams because Golgotha was on a hill. And you've got uh, Judah Ben-Hur, his mother and sister, in the tomb. They got leprosy. And just like that, the Lord heals them both. Now, of course, the film is fictitious, but you understand the imagery, don't you? The blood coming down, by the, uh, coming down the cross, down the stream, picturing our salvation, of course. Look at verse 18, please. And the fish that is in the river shall die, and the river shall stink. And the Egyptians shall loathe the drink of the water of the river. So one more time. Let us suggest this, that the River Nile, if we are to break it in half, will be, say, 2,000 miles. Let's say out of 2,000 miles, half of those 2,000 miles, or let's say 500 miles. Let's be really conservative now. Let's say 500 miles, a good area around Pharaoh's headquarters, has been polluted, has been infected. And as a result, you've got the fish uh, in the river, Dying, stinking, and as a result, the Egyptians are unable to drink of the water of the river. And of course, you know that if you can't drink or if you don't have access to water, you will die. Think of that account from Luke 16, 19 to 31. The rich man is in hell looking up. He sees Father Abraham and he says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus that he may dip his finger in my tongue. For I'm in this awful place of torments. I thirst, that would be what the Lord would say on the cross, I thirst. And therefore Jesus Christ, when he says, I thirst, 
and that and that rich man in hell, Father Abraham, I want a a, a bit of water from uh, Lazarus, the beggar. Send him to get some water. I need to drink. I am in great need of water. And the Lord Jesus Christ will say, I thirst. Put those verses together. You've got Jesus Christ dying a cursed death. Uh, Galatians chapter 3. And part of the uh, curse of dying a cursed death or part of Christ's substitutionary atonement is that he dies in our place. And he dies in the place of those of us which are saved. And if we die without Christ, we go straight to hell upon death. And we are thirsty. We are very thirsty. We are perhaps very uh, hungry. We can survive uh, without food for a period of time, but we can't survive long without water. In fact, I think 80% of our bodies or 75% of our bodies are water-based, and therefore Christ is dying in your place. But for the Egyptians to be unable to drink of the water, they're going to die. And this is a great picture of the Lord turning the screws, if you will, on the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. The only similarity that I can think, and it's not a very uh, good similarity, again would be Luther challenging the papacy, Paul V, back in the day. But the Vatican survived Luther, the Vatican survived Calvin. In fact, if you look at churches today, nearly all of them are ecumenical and in bed with Rome. But Ridley and Latimer made the case in Oxford that if Almighty God could open the eyes of the king, being Henry VIII, uh, that a light would never go out. And that took place. Henry VIII allowed the Bishop's Bible to go out, and King James uh, would commission the King James Bible. So let me say this. We are a minority of minorities, and we are the true lights of the world. We reflect the light of the Saviour. Most of the world, most of the religious world is in terrible darkness. And here you've got the Lord really turning up the pressure. And he wants the lieutenants, he wants the leaders, he wants the magicians especially to see what is going on. If you think of Matthew chapter 2 when the wise men arrive in Jerusalem and they go around asking everybody, where is the king uh, that has been born, the king of the Jews? And Herod's secret police track these three men down, at least three men, we believe. They are taken to his palace, and he's got all of the priests around him, the collars. And he says to the uh, priests and reverence, what is this that these wise men are telling me, a so-called king of the Jews? And they say to uh, Herod, yes, that is very true. Micah 5.2 speaks about his goings being from everlasting and he'll be born in Bethlehem. Those old reprobates knew the scriptures, but the problem was they didn't believe the scriptures. Like the Catholic Church today, like the Church of England today, and most churches, they don't believe in the scriptures. This is the bottom line. They don't believe that the word of God is the inspired, infallible word of God. Look at verse 19, please. And the Lord spake unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Take thy rod, and stretch out thine hand upon the waters of Egypt, upon their streams, upon their rivers, and upon their ponds, and upon all their pools of water, that they may become blood, and that there may be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Keep your hand there, and go to Revelation, Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 9. 
Another verse that came to me this morning, Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9, look at verse 13, please. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. So, river Euphrates covers Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. The Euphrates is 2,800 kilometers. That is 1,739 miles. Keep that in mind. Uh, Jump to chapter 16. Uh, Chapter 16. Chapter 16. Look at verse 12, please. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Go back to Exodus chapter 7. So if we think of the Nile, if we understand that the Nile, number one, is at most 4,000 miles, the Nile feeds into the Suez Canal, the Nile also feeds into the Euphrates. If you think of that scripture from Revelation concerning the kings of the east, What you could suggest is this, that the Lord is going to dry up around 1,700 miles. There's going to be some need to dry up the Euphrates so that the kings of the earth can march towards Israel. Today, Iraq, Syria and Turkey are all Islamic, as are Uganda, Ethiopia, Sudan and Egypt. Interesting, isn't it? All those countries have long been enemies of Israel. And you say, why? One word, jealous. They are jealous of Israel. Israel is the most advanced nation in the Middle East. They have amongst the best scientists in the world. They are always the first when it comes to earthquakes or natural disasters. The Israeli military will transport their uh, first responders to uh, situations around the globe very quickly unlike such islamic countries because they haven't got the infrastructure they haven't got the know-how the expertise whereas the israelis have got those things so 19 exodus 7 19 take thy rod thy staff thy stick and also for matthew chapter 10 cross reference that to luke chapter 10 the apostles are going to do miracles And that would include Judas Iscariot. And here this rod, this staff, is also connected to signs and wonders. Stretch out thine hand upon the waters, plural, of Egypt. Could be, like I say, 2,000 miles. Or let's be conservative and suggest 500 miles. So people could see it. Upon their streams. So you've got waters and streams. If you think of Revelation, it says there'll be no more seas, but there will be lakes in the millennial reign. Upon their rivers, rivers, streams, waters, and upon their ponds. Ponds. If you think of Revelation 16, it speaks about three frogs, or a group of frogs coming out of the unholy trinity. Uh, Satan, Antichrist, false prophets, and frogs are synonymous with witchcraft. I know when I was a kid, we had a pond at the bottom of our garden, and maybe once every 
three or four years, we were very fortunate to see a frog or two, a big old, a big old a toad, uh, jumping in and out of our pond. Not very often, but when we saw it, it was always a sight to behold. And such, of course, is innocence. But when witches come into the equation, they use frogs, toads. In fact, I think from the Wizard of Oz, 1939, there are frogs tied in with the Wicked Witch of the West, I seem to recall. And upon all their pools of water, that they may become blood, picturing judgments once more. And that there may be blood throughout all the land of Egypt. So you've got blood covering all of the land of Egypt. Could we suggest this? Could we suggest all without exception? Or could we suggest all without distinction? Both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Wood and stone. Also, cross-reference that back to verse 15. Tied in with some kind of a ritual. If you think of the mass, if you think of the chalice, if you think of the priest holding up the chalice, and when he says the blood of Christ, they go down on their knees. And when he holds up the wafer, he says the body of Christ, they go down on their knees. And you say, why would that be? Well, they believe that when the priest does that, such has been transferred or translated into the body and blood of the Lord, uh, uh, body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. They call that transubstantiation. An awful word, I know. And just for the record, it is folly. It is heretical. It is an illusion. It is a dangerous fable and a blasphemous deceit. Look at verse 20, please, from Exodus chapter 7. And Moses and Aaron did so as the Lord commanded. And he lifted up the rod and smote the waters that were in the river, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. So, let me say this. The Nile, and I'll give you the measurements, over 6,500 kilometers, over 4,000 miles. It is the longest river in Africa and the world. Also, the Suez Canal, which, like I say, was closed back in 1956 by President Nasser, uh, is connected to the Mediterranean. And just for the record, the Suez Canal is 782 kilometers. That was closed for eight years. So very large rivers, very large uh, streams. If you think of the River Thames, now the River Thames in London is 346 kilometers. That's only 215 miles. It's tiny. If you think of Lake Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee, in fact, Lake Tiberias is the Sea of Galilee. Sometimes people get confused. Lake Tiberius, Tiberius was one of the Roman emperors. Lake Tiberius, or called it the Sea of Galilee, at most is 21 kilometers. That's 13 miles long. And 13 kilometers, that's eight miles wide. And also remember that Jesus Christ would perform, uh, would, uh, perform an exorcism on a demon-possessed man at the Lake of Gennesaret. Same place. So these lakes are tiny when it comes to what Moses is witnessing. And I was in Egypt some years ago and I went to Cairo and part of my very brief trip to Egypt was a trip, a boat trip on the River Nile, an absolute waste of time. Uh, but it was part of the package, the uh, holiday package. And we jumped on the boat, pitch black, didn't really see much. And the boat just did a big loop, did two miles down the Nile, Turn around and came back to ports, and we all got kicked off the boat. Very disappointing, but you get some idea 
when it comes to the size of the Nile, the River Nile, or the Nile River, feeding into the Euphrates from Revelation, and also the Suez Canal. And here, this is being done once more in the presence of Pharaoh and Co. It would have been humiliating for Pharaoh to have to entertain Moses and Aaron, and of course he knew such gentlemen. Look at verse 21. And the fish that was in the river died, and the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink of the water of the river. And there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Now panic kicks in. It was bad enough at the end of World War Two. It was bad enough at the end of the collapse of the Soviet Union. It was bad enough when Tchaikovsky fell. It was bad enough when uh, Marcus fell. It was bad enough when Saddam fell. It was bad enough when Gaddafi fell. All these tyrants, they've all been around far too long. That was all bad enough. But here you've got water being reduced to blood. Now, could you drink blood if you had to? You think of vampires drinking blood. But could you drink blood if you had to? Let's say you're on a plane and a plane crashes and you find yourself, say, on the Himalayas or somewhere obscure and you are desperately trying to survive. In fact, some years ago, a plane did crash. Uh, I think it was somewhere in Central or South America. I forget Chile. where it was. Chile. Chile. And people uh, were eating each other yeah. to survive. Uh, you can't really imagine it, can you? People eating each other. But could you drink blood? Could you go to a dead body? Or could you go to a living body and start to drink blood to survive? And here, desperation. People can't survive long without water. And yet Jesus Christ would say that he is uh, going to give you everlasting water. Uh, he will give you an abundance of water, streams into everlasting life. So here you've got two things. You've got Moses destroying a nation from within. Contrast that to Jesus offering you salvation from without. Moses and Aaron did so as the Lord commanded. Verse 20 again. And he lifted up the rod and smote the waters that were in the river. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. Absolutely humiliating. They couldn't stop this. If you think of any major catastrophe or crisis, if you think of a tornado, if you think of an earthquake or a hurricane or a typhoon, at best the governments can evacuate people. They can move you from A to B, but they can't stop such arriving. And yet Jesus Christ on one occasion would walk on the Lake Tiberias, Sea of Galilee, at three o'clock in the morning, and he would walk some 14 miles and he would get onto a boat, and the apostles would say, Who is this man? And it says they were fearful of him. Well, of course. And he would uh, rebuke the waves. And, of course, that is the Lord demonstrating his power over Mother Nature. Isn't she wonderful? In the sight of his servants and all the waters, that when the river were turned to blood. So, one more time, one final time. It could be 2,000 miles, it could be 1,000 miles, it could be 500 miles, it could be 50 miles. But this was a big miracle. I mean, if Jesus Christ was able to commandeer for himself the Sea of Galilee, which, like I say, is 13 miles long and 8 miles wide, that's nothing. He could easily commandeer the River Thames at most 215 miles. He could easily commandeer the Suez Canal at around 500 miles. That's 782 kilometers could he commandeer the River Nile? You bet he could. 
4,000 miles. Over in Genesis chapter 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And of course, you know God is Elohim. And Elohim can be plural and singular. And I've always understood Genesis 1-1 to be in reference to the Trinity. And yes, the Trinity is being attacked. A lot of people are collapsing over the belief concerning the Trinity. A lot of people are getting involved with the oneness and modalism, heresy, that somehow Jesus Christ is God the Father, or somehow Jesus Christ is the Holy Ghost, and they make an absolute mess of the Scripture. And if you take such a view to be so, not only are you a heretic, but you've got Jesus Christ speaking to himself, which is a bit like what Muhammad would experience. Muhammad would claim to be hearing voices and be foaming at the mouth and rolling around in a cave. Do you want to follow someone like that? Let's stick with the historical understanding of the Trinity. And just for the record, the Trinity, the word the word, the Trinity came around 180 AD, long before the Jesuits were ever around. 21. And the fish that was in the river died, and the river stank. And Egyptians could not drink of the water of the river, and there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. So again, the imagery is incredibly vivid. This will be repeated, I will suggest, from Revelation 9, Revelation 16, before the Lord returns, Revelation 19. Almighty God is going to dry up the rivers. He would allow the children of Israel, around 2 million, to leave, to escape from the wrath of Pharaoh. If Christ could walk on the water, and he certainly could. If he could raise the dead, and he certainly could. If he could give sight to the blind, him and to the deaf, and raise the dead, this is a walk in the park. 22 and I'll close. And the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Neither did he hearken unto them, as the Lord had said. Magicians once again. Magicians. Now last week we spoke about witchcraft. Last week we spoke about martial arts like karate, like taekwondo, like um, Aikido. Aikido, and stuff such as that, judo. judo, absolutely, and if you get involved with the martial arts, as it is referred to, you are expected to bow down to the, I think it's a seance, no, it's not the seance, I can't remember the names, the person's name, the uh, person who leads the uh, martial arts event, he has a name, it has escaped me. But when you go into such an environment, you are to be in submission to the man who is leading such an event. You are to bow down. And it's been written and exposed and spoken about by many great people over the years that when you do such a thing or such a ritual, you are allowing unclean spirits to come into you. And as a result, something like bestiality becomes commonplace. Something like paedophilia becomes commonplace. Something like sodomy becomes commonplace. And that's why it's so important, especially if you have young children, not to allow them to do such things. Because once young people, impressionable people, get caught up in the martial arts movements or the secret arts, like Freemasonry, which is another description of uh, witchcraft, it is very difficult to break such a spell. And of course, you need to be born again in order to be set free. Magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. They're going to try and uh, mimic. They're going to try and counter what Moses and Aaron are doing. 
And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Going back to Luke chapter 6. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Neither did he hearken unto them. Well, of course not. He doesn't want to lose uh, face in the sight of such people. As the Lord had said. The Lord has spoken it. The Lord has made it clear that this is going to happen. That you can't reverse it. Like concerning the fact that Pharaoh will not release the children of Israel. It will take the complete destruction of the nation of Egypt, I should say. And once Egypt has been destroyed, then the children of Israel are going to go out. If you think about Germany, 1943, 1944, 1945, Germany's best generals were telling Hitler, like weekly, if not daily, that the war was over, that they couldn't win, that Russia was huge, like had 10 million men, and the Americans were supplying tanks and ammunition, and the British were pushing hard from the four corners of the earth, thanks to the British Empire, and those generals, very skillful generals, unlike Hitler, who was just a corporal during World War I, they were saying to him that the war is over, but he wouldn't listen. He was absolutely uh, deluded, like many people are today, he was deceived, and he said, no, we will fight. And by the end of 44, 45, you got children, boys under the age of 16 being sent to France, and men over the age of 50 being deployed to the Western Front and also to the Eastern Front. The war was over. But Hitler, like Pharaoh, like Saddam, like Gaddafi, like Marcus, like uh, Chichasco, and the list goes on and on and on. Couldn't let go of power. They wanted to retain it for as long as possible. And therefore it will hear from seven twenty-two results in the destruction of a nation. And once that takes place, the creation of a nation. And this goes back to people unable, unwilling to let go of their power. They want to retain it. They are completely unable to see any way out of surviving without being at the top of their game we will close it there and return next week to chapter 7 verse 23 this will be week number 15 looking at the book of exodus and what i want to do this morning if i may is just look at a couple of verses which we've looked at over the last two or three weeks to drill somewhat deeper if you go to exodus chapter 6 please exodus chapter 6 Look at verse 28, if you will. And it came to pass on the day when the Lord spake unto Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, I am the Lord. Speak thou unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say unto thee. Keep your hand there and go to Second Timothy chapter 3. Almighty God speaks to people. We call that oral communication. And then when he speaks to people... Uh, through some audible voice or through dreams or visions or prophecies later on they will write down uh, what he has revealed to them and that of course becomes the preserved word of god uh second timothy chapter three second timothy chapter three look at verse uh, 14 if you will but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and has been instructed of knowing of whom thou hast learned them and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, 
which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all a good works. So the battle concerning biblical Christianity and Roman Catholicism, when it comes to our final authority, continues to this day, and yet Tragically, most British churches have surrendered. Most British churches no longer stand for sola scriptura or sola fide. But when it comes to how we are saved, when it comes to what happens once we are saved, we have to take a stand. And here you are told from 3.15 how Timothy, when he was a child, up until the age of accountability or slightly after, had known the Holy Scriptures. He had known the Holy Scriptures and as a result, they made him wise unto salvation. You can get saved by reading the word of God. You can get saved by walking down a street and hearing a street preacher preach. In fact, a couple of hours ago, I was watching a clip online. I am a subscriber to a Chinese uh, church near Beijing, a young church, late 20s, early 30s, a very brave church. If you don't know, China is still a police state. And I watched one of their videos this morning and this lone preacher, one of the brothers, was preaching on a very busy main street, a very busy main road. And five private security guards walked over to him. Uh, a lot of talking in uh, Cantonese, a lot of back and forth. And they confiscated his uh, banner and he mentioned in the description box that he has to wait until Monday to get his banner back. I like that kind of thing. I can relate to that kind of thing. I want to speak about that a little more in a moment. All scripture, verse 16, is given by inspiration of God. So pre the writing of the word of God, almighty God, like I say, would speak in an audible voice. First Peter says how uh, holy men of God spake as they're moved by the holy God. No inspiration came by chance, but as I say, they were moved by the Spirit of God. Also from Genesis it says how the, Spirit, how the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So the Lord speaks to people, and from Exodus chapter 7, he is speaking to Moses, probably in Hebrew or Aramaic, and he is commanding Moses what to do. Later on, Moses will write down every word that was revealed to him. So it starts with an oral revelation, and again, it could be through a dream, or a vision, or an appearance. If you think of uh, Genesis chapter 18, the Lord comes down to earth, and he sees Abraham, and we refer to such as a Christophany. At least one member of the Godhead is present, and he speaks to Abraham, and Abraham speaks back to him. It's a conversation. And later on, that gets written down. All scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, not the Apocrypha, is given by inspiration of God. He breathes it out. And is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God, not the woman of God, that the man of God may be perfect, like complete, thoroughly furnished, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Go back to Exodus chapter 7. So, if you have the word of God, you are totally equipped for everything, anything, at any time. And that's why Rome fears Bible-believing Christians. And that's why for centuries, if you were a Catholic and you wanted to read the Bible, as rare as that would be, 
you need a permission from your local bishop. And if he didn't give you permission, and the chances are he wouldn't, uh, you'd be in great trouble. You'd be in great trouble. So from 6, 28, one more time. And it came to pass on the day when the Lord spake unto Moses, all in the, in the uh, land of Egypt, that the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, I am the Lord. I have no beginning. I have no end. I am in the present tense. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the Lord. Speak thou unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say unto thee. That's quite a commandment. That's quite a statement. And without any messing around, Moses now knows what he has to do. And yet, like I've said over the last couple of weeks, he is going to be economical. He won't relay everything from the Lord because he is fearful. From chapter 7, from chapter 7, look at verse 6 again, please. And Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded them. So did they. So if you think of Acts chapter 15. In fact go to Acts chapter 15. Uh, Acts chapter 15. I am always very supportive of street preachers. I like to uh, stand up for street preachers. And I think of uh, these brave men and women. Women in uh, Beijing. In China. A police state like I say. A very cruel state. As far as I know, they still have the one child policy. And when I look at Acts chapter 15, and I think about the verse we just read from 7 6, from Acts 15, I think of verse uh, 25. It seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every time a street preacher, even in the West, every time they go out onto the streets, they are putting their lives on the line. Let's be quite honest. People are being killed for far less than what a street preacher uh, would say and do. I'll give you one more. Go to Romans uh, chapter 16. We're living in dangerous times. I saw a clip this past week of a police officer outside of Liverpool, a uh, traffic police officer, and it was posted online, and he did a stop. He pulled this... uh, motorcyclist over somewhere outside of Liverpool and within two minutes of the police car pulling up a lone officer he's on the floor the motorcyclist has overpowered him and these two men in the middle of the day like 10 11 o'clock in the morning are rolling around on the floor and to watch it is pretty awful and a lone officer nobody comes to his aid straight away and then a few cars pull up, guys jump out of the car and they go and assist the officer. And then two minutes later, two bobbies, we call them bobbies in the UK, come running down the street to assist the officer. That could have gone either way. I mean, within two minutes, that officer has been overpowered. And there's no way he could have got that man off him. There was a clip posted online last year of a officer in America. He had been uh, in an altercation with uh, a criminal. The criminal overpowered him. The criminal had a gun. And the officer was at the point of no return, the point of death. A passerby saw what was going on, got out of the car, walked over to this criminal, pulled out his gun and said, stand back. And he said it three times and the man ignored him. He opened fire and he shot the criminal. And he was commended by the police chief in America. We're living in dangerous times. Uh, Romans chapter 16 Uh, Romans chapter 16, look please at verse 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my help is in Christ Jesus. 
who have for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. So it was risky for Moses and Aaron to challenge Pharaoh. It was risky for Priscilla and Aquila and others to indirectly challenge Nero and Titus. And here, twice in the New Testament, brave men, Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas, have been commended by Dr. Luke, who wrote uh, the Acts. And here, 16, uh, Romans 16, written by the Apostle Paul, he is commending a husband and wife team. And no, just for the record, they were not pastors. Go back to Exodus, please. Exodus uh, chapter 7. This will be week number 15, if you've just joined us. This will be our number 9. And I just want to, if I may, for a few more minutes, just pick out some verses which we've already looked at and drill a little deeper. 716, 7.16 And thou shalt say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath sent me unto thee, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. And behold... Hitherto thou wouldest not hear. Go to Romans chapter 10, please. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Romans uh, chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Look at verse 1, if you will. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. If I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. To everyone that believeth. It's the same old song. It's the same old thing. If you challenge someone in authority, uh, there will be a level of pushback. And here the Jews are spoken of as being in unbelief, refusing to receive Christ. Because for them, they want to have some kind of works. They want to do something. They want to brag and boast about how religious they are. They keep the Sabbath, or so they would have us believe. They don't do this, they don't do that, or so they would have us believe. And they also believe that they keep the Torah, or so they would have us believe. Go back to Exodus chapter 7. So nothing really, uh, nothing much ever really changes when it comes to people such as Moses and Aaron, uh, two biological brothers, or Jesus and John, two biological cousins. Moses and Aaron are going to come up against Pharaoh. Jesus and John are going to come up against Herod. And later on, Jesus is going to come up against uh, Pilate, of course. Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. Look at verse 17, please. Thus saith the Lord... In this thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Again, present tense. No beginning, no end. He is eternal, and you can't really understand that, but you are told to believe it. Behold, I will smite with a rod that is in mine hand upon the waters which are in the river, and they shall be turned to blood. Go to uh, Revelation Revelation chapter 8. The word to describe what I'm doing this morning is midrash. Midrash, M-I-D-R-A-S-H, Midrash. What takes place in the Old Testament is going to be repeated during the New Testament. Uh, Revelation chapter 8, Revelation chapter 8, look at verse 7 please. And the first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood. And they were cast upon the earth, and a third part of the trees was burnt up, 
and all green grass was burnt up. And the second angel sounded, and as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea. And the third part of the sea became blood, and the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. And the third part of the ships were destroyed. What we are reading about from the book of Exodus, 1500 BC, or written down 1500 BC, perhaps taking place 16 up to up to 1800 BC, is going to take place during the tribulation, Jacob's trouble, once a church has been removed. Jump over to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, let's see if we can identify one of the two witnesses. Uh, Revelation chapter 11, look at verse 3 please. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. I will give power, also meaning authority. Most teachers in the UK have a lot of responsibility, but no authority, which is no good. A lot of police in the UK have a lot of authority, but no power. Or responsibility, I should say, but no authority. There was a clip posted online last year of a British Bobby in Birmingham. And he challenged this Muslim man for making a lot of rackets. And somebody posted this online. And this five or six minutes uh, altercation was pretty uh, uneasy to watch. And this Muslim man was cussing, cursing, raising his voice, really making this police officer look like a fool completely powerless going back to yes you have the responsibility but do you have the authority and I watched this loan officer no more than two years ago having to take this barrage of abuse awful to watch and in the end the officer walked away he's on his own what else could he do and I read in the paper the following week the Muslim man was identified by the police in Birmingham and was arrested at dawn and charged with a particular crime. I thought, wonderful. The long arm of the law, as I say, the long arm of the law, reached out, traced this man, and put him before the courts. But it was uncomfortable to watch, and it went on for a long period of time, like the instance in Liverpool this past week. Look at verse uh, 4, please. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Gabriel when he appeared to Mary, said, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, like I am continually standing in the presence of God, which means this, that these two witnesses are permanently in heaven, in a spiritual sense, but here they're going to be physically, physically on the earth during the tribulation. Uh, John chapter 3, it says how the Son of Man uh, is in heaven, and at the same time on the earth. You can't really understand that. What that means, in essence, is that Jesus Christ is almighty God. And no, he's not God the Father. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks, candlesticks, standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These are holy men. And if you tangle with such people, you be put to death. John the Baptist was insulted, he was slandered, he was detained, uh, he was treated with contempt for a period of time. Nothing happened because he was chosen to suffer. Jesus Christ was also put through the same type of thing for a period of time. And eventually, 
when it chose, uh, eventually when it uh, pleased the Lord, he dealt with such people. At the second advent, if you just as much as look at the Lord Jesus Christ the wrong way, he will execute you. You don't believe me? Read Revelation chapter 19 sometime. Verse 6, please. These have power to shut heaven, that array not in the days of their prophecy like Elijah, and have power over waters to turn them to blood like Moses, Exodus 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and to smite the earth with all plagues. That will come next week, chapter 8, as often as they will. So these verses all point back to what takes place in the Old Testament is a picture of what will take place in the New Testament. Go back, please, to the book of Exodus. So we call that Midrash, and that is a term which as I say, describes something happening in the Old Testament and ultimately happening and completing or conclusion, uh, concluding, I should say, for the New Testament. 7.22 And the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Neither did he hearken unto them, as the Lord had said. So in case you missed it, this is a heart issue, not a head issue. I think it's absolutely fair to say that Pharaoh knew that these two men were, shall we say, unusual, not a couple of kooks. What they were saying was correct, but Pharaoh, like Pilate, Pharaoh, like Herod, was conceited. Didn't want to uh, capitulate, didn't want to lose face uh, in the presence of those all around him, which is a problem that even say people come up against. Nothing worse than standing on a street corner and I've done it many times over the years, and somebody walks past you, makes a, makes a crude remark, or insinuates something, or gets right up in your face, and you have to stay calm. You can't start brawling. You can't start fighting. I mean, physically. And to watch these brothers in Beijing this morning, standing on a very busy street, with a placard up, preaching the gospel, very calm. And, like I say, five private security officers walk over, throw their weights around, confiscate the banner, and yet these brothers, calm as cucumber, didn't start arguing, didn't start shouting, didn't start getting physical. And I've seen other people online do just that. And as a result, they greatly pleased their father in heaven. But 22 speaks about magicians, like witches, like warlocks, like sorcerers, like clairvoyants. And these people are going to try and return the compliments, if you will. They're going to try and push back what Moses and Aaron are going to do. A bit like the devil would try and push back the Lord Jesus Christ. I like to give the accounts when the Lord was on the Sea of Galilee. And we spoke about that last Sunday. Also referred to as Lake Tiberias. And also the uh, Lake of Gennesaret. It's late at night. He's fast asleep. And the apostles start to panic. There's a storm. And they say, Master, awake. Uh, we are in great jeopardy, so on and so forth. And he jumps up. In fact, he casually gets up, clicks his fingers, rebukes the wind, rebukes the sea. And they say, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea are in obedience to him? Moses couldn't do that, really. Muhammad couldn't do that, really. You couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. But he could because he is God. But that was an attack on the apostles uh, by the devil. 
And that was an attack on the Lord, again, by the devil. Wherever there's good, there's evil. Going back to my opening comments, sola scriptura, or if you take the Catholic position, scripture and tradition. And that won't do, because that's what the Pharisees were guilty of doing. And as a result, they preached a false, damnable gospel, and as a result, went to, he- uh, went to hell. Magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, like the Antichrist and the false prophet will do, also found in uh, Revelation, Midrash again. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, neither did he hearken unto them, as the Lord had said. Go to, uh, go to Jeremiah, please. The famous uh, passage, Jeremiah, speaks about our hearts, and I mean our hearts, like your heart, like my heart. I don't care how long you've been saved for. Jeremiah says this about you. Jeremiah 17, Jeremiah 17, look at verse 9, please. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the hearts, I try the reins even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruits of his doings. Your heart is no good, so therefore, when you get born again, you get a new heart, but you're still no good. There's enough of the old man still inside of you and me and all of us to just shame us on a perpetual basis. And I'm always flabbergasted when I come across people online like street preachers And yes, I do salute street preachers. Of course I do. I salute the boys in Beijing. Uh, I don't know what their theology is. I don't particularly care. They're doing something. They are upholding the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he can use that. He can use a bad witness. I'm not saying those guys are bad. I'm not saying that. But I have seen bad preachers online. And they do what they do. And they say what they do. Many times they bring dishonor on the Lord. And they stand up and they argue with people, many times younger people, and they say that they no longer sin, or they say that they don't sin in the ways that their audience sins, but they overlook the reality that, I think it's from James, where it says if you break one of uh, the Ten Commandments, or if you break one part of the law, you've broken the entire parts of the law. And they nitpick, and they say, well, I haven't done this, and I haven't done that, And they're very proud of themselves. You may have seen these people very proud of themselves. I no longer drink. I no longer smoke. I no no longer gamble. And they expect you to congratulate them. They expect you to clap or show your uh, approval. But when they go home, what are they like with their wives or their children? If you break one part of the law, you've broken all of it. The heart, your heart, my heart, all of our hearts is present tense. Deceitful above all things. Now, did you get that? All things. And desperately wicked, apart from Jesus Christ, of course. Who can know it? Well, you can't know it. The Lord can, and of course, does know it. Most of what you see online is a front. People put on a good front. They want to put on a good show. If you think of an interview, you go for a job interview, you dress well, don't you? You polish your shoes. Of course you do. Especially if you are a man. You wear a nice tie. You have a shave. You put on your best front, your best face. Of course you do. You want to make a good impression. And that's what a lot of these preachers are doing. They are wanting to shine and be more than they actually are. And as a result, they are deceiving themselves and others. I, the Lord, search the hearts. I, Almighty God, search the heart. I try the reins, 
even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruits of his doings. Not just in reference to uh, rewards at the judgment seats and rewards at the great white throne judgments. And yes, there will be saved people at the great white throne judgment, but also in reference to unsaved people at the great white throne judgment. So your heart is no good. I'm going to give you one more uh, from the book of Proverbs, and then we will go back to Exodus uh, 7 and finish uh, for today. Proverbs 17, Proverbs uh, 17. Look at verse 16, if you will. Wherefore, is there a price in the hand of a fool to get wisdom, seeing he hath no heart to it? He has no heart to receive it. It's like the uh, tin man. I think it's the tin man in The Wizard of Oz. I have no heart. And, of course, he had a heart. And that movie is a humanist movie. But here, wherefore is there a price in the hand of a fool to get wisdom, seeing he hath no heart to it? His heart is dead. His heart is closed. He doesn't want to receive it. He is quite happy to reject the light and, as a result, perish upon death. Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. Look at verse 23, please. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither did he set his heart to this also. Matthew 24, it speaks about Jesus Christ being shown the temple. And we believe that Judas was one of the apostles present. And like I say, my next project will be to profile Judas Iscariot. And the Lord said several things. He would predict the end of the world. He would also say that not one stone would be left upon another. And he would also say that you won't see me, referring to Israel, until you say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. But here Pharaoh is representing unbelieving Israel. If you will, going back to Romans 10, 1 to 4. Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither did he set his heart to this also. He had free will. He did have free will. I know a lot of people don't like to believe that. A lot of Calvinists despise the belief that the Lord has given, has given mankind free will, while at the same time remaining sovereign. God is sovereign, man has free will, and I've meant, I mentioned this many times over the years. Can you understand it? No, you can't understand it, but you're told to believe it. Going back to trying to comprehend the Godhead. You can't comprehend it, but you're told to believe it. 24. And all the Egyptians digged round about the river for water to drink, for they could not drink of the water of the river. If you think of Mark 16, it speaks about uh, those that will come down the line being able to drink uh, from contaminated waters. And again, during the tribulation, the waters, the seas, are not only going to be turned to blood. And I gave you the verses from Revelation 8 and also Revelation 11 concerning quite likely Moses and Elijah being the two witnesses. But on top of that, you're going to have 144,000 Jewish male virgins from the 12 tribes, and they will need to drink to survive. And therefore, that scripture from Mark 16 is for them. It's not for us today. And seven days were fulfilled. After that, the Lord has smitten the river. Seven days, you could suggest this, you could suggest seven years. You could suggest that the entire length of the Great Tribulation, also referred to as Daniel's uh, 70th week and Jacob's trouble, is also in reference here. Seven days, seven years. I don't want to 
go beyond the text and become guilty of exegeting of the scripture, not exegeting the scripture, but you can't help but think about it, can you? Seven years, seven days. So 25 verses from Exodus chapter 7, and like I say, this has been week number 15, uh, hour number 9, and the best is still to come, the uh, final crescendo is still to come. If you think of Jesus and John, they started very slowly, very simply, very calmly. As time went by, uh, the pressure increased, and as a result, John the Baptist uh, was executed. He had his head removed. If you think of that text from uh, Revelation chapter 6, it speaks about the souls in heaven under the altar. They've also been beheaded, which would suggest that during the tribulation, uh, the Antichrist is going to be cutting people's heads off, uh, using guillotines perhaps. Also think of uh, David and Goliath. Think of uh, Revelation 19, when the Lord comes back with a sword. And also think of Psalm 110, when the Messiah cuts people's heads off. Again, Midrash, from beginning to end. The simplest way to put it uh, would be along the lines of this. What you read in the Old Testament is stage one. What you read in the New Testament is stage two. It's like a play, if you will, or it's like a movie, if you will. A typical movie is, say, 120 minutes, two hours. Break it in half, 60 minutes for the first half, 60 minutes for the second half. Or think of a football match. A football match runs 90 minutes, break it in half, you've got two 45-minute segments. The Old Testament is the first half, the New Testament is the second half. Moses and Aaron... Old Testament are picturing Jesus and John, New Testament. Also picturing Paul and Barnabas from uh, Acts chapter 15. Go back to the Old Testament. Pharaoh is going to picture Herod, Pilate, and also the Antichrist. And the Antichrist will work very closely with the false prophets, which if you go back to uh, 7, uh, 22, uh, will do signs and wonders like they would do in Egypt to counter the miracles of Moses. So you're either saved or unsaved, you're either good or evil, you're either in the truth or not. There's no middle ground, there's no grey area and as I say if you think of the brave people today uh, that are doing frontline work we salute them and Moses and Aaron were very brave because they could have been executed to challenge the authority of Pharaoh could have resulted in their death, like when John the Baptist challenged the authority of Herod, he lost his head. He died. And when the Lord Jesus Christ found himself in the presence of Pilate, due to the Lord's uh, permissive will, due to the Lord's timing, he too would die, not as a criminal, but in the place of criminals, such as you and I. So just a very important uh, recap, looking at those verses, trying to harmonize the Old Testament's with the New Testament, looking at Sola Scriptura versus uh, Scripture and Tradition, or faith alone versus faith and works. Without the Scripture, uh, 2 Timothy three fourteen to 17, you would be sunk. Yes, you have the law written on your hearts, made very clear from uh, the book of Jeremiah also, but your heart is still desperately wicked, and that's why you need the Scriptures to check everything and everyone. I'm going to close it there and uh, next week pick it up from Exodus chapter 8.